Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 163 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to talk all things NXT and AEW coming out of another exciting, entertaining middle of the week of professional wrestling, NXT and AEW, both delivering very similar yet different shows. Great action, interesting storytelling, but there was certainly a solid way to juxtapose these programs and we will get to that as we move forward in today's show we do have nxt building to its newly announced next takeover while aew is just a couple weeks away from double or nothing the 2021 edition and they announced a slew of major pay-per-view matches on wednesday night so we do have a long show ahead plenty to get to but the silver king will take you the entire way as i always do before we get to all of those things a reminder, you know how we take care of business at the beginning of this show. It is time for you all to stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts and dropping a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this damn show. You can also head on over to Twitter, give us a follow at Getting Overcast. Not only do we tweet episodes as soon as they come out, we do pre and post show polls for pay-per-views and live audio shows for free on Twitter spaces. But you need to be following us at Getting Overcast and you need to have the official Twitter app for iOS or Android on your phone in order to listen to those. And given that this is a pay-per-view week, we will have WWE WrestleMania Backlash. I almost forgot the name of the show there. WWE WrestleMania Backlash instant analysis for you Sunday night as soon as that show goes off the air. So you're going to want to make sure to follow us at Getting Overcast. First of all, so you know when that episode comes out, but we will have a pre and post show grading poll so you can participate and let us know what you expect and what you think of that pay-per-view. But we're not here today to talk WWE. We are here to talk NXT and AEW, and we have an absolute ton to get to from both programs. So as always, let's start with NXT. It airs Tuesday night. It goes first. We're going to talk about it first. And let's begin with the main event. The Cruiserweight Championship was on the line as Kushida defended the title against Santos Escobar in a two out of three falls match. MSK immediately came to Kushida's aid after the bell when Legato went after Kushida, so the referee tossed all four of them from ringside, ensuring a pretty clean one-on-one match with three falls, which is not something you always get, especially when a faction or a group is involved. Escobar inventively choked Kushida with his throat pressed into the ring post during a Boston Crab on the stairs early in the match, and then dominated for a while, hitting a phantom driver to go up 1-0 very quickly on Kushida. It was a surprise to see it happen that fast, and there was a slight botch on the cover, but they made it work. Escobar tried to take the advantage from there, but Kushida caught him in a cross arm breaker for the submission to get even at one and one. And we got to give massive credit here to Vic Joseph for doing an absolutely incredible job live on air because he was in the middle of sending NXT to a commercial break, 
but verbally yelled for the truck to wait on the hold to make sure they didn't miss a potential fall. I'm not sure if it was kayfabe scripting or just him being great at his job, but it made the moment feel all that more spontaneous, exciting, and real, which is not something you frequently get when it comes to wrestling. That is just expertly done. Great job by Vic Joseph right there. Kushida folded Escobar over for a 2.9 count. Then Escobar got the same with an inside cradle. They replayed the title winning pinning combination spot that allowed Kushida to win the title a couple weeks ago. And then they took each other out with simultaneous clotheslines. Kushida countered off the top rope with an avalanche hoverboard lock slam and blocked Escobar from the ropes. But Escobar found the ropes eventually. Kushida then suplexed Escobar into the turnbuckles and beat him clean in the middle of the ring with a hooking suplex and a bridge. This was an absolute banger of a match. It was incredibly well booked and wrestled. Escobar came off as super strong despite the loss, which is obviously something that is extremely important. And of course, we know, as I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, that this was the right booking because Escobar needs to get the hell out of the cruiserweight division and move past it. Not only did both of these wrestlers look great, the title was elevated by the match and its placement in the main event. You don't often see the Cruiserweight title defended in the main event of a regular NXT television show. I cannot praise this enough. It was a full four stars and an A- minus for me, as Vince McMahon would say. It really was such good shit. Now let's talk about the rest of the show because I did mention MSK. MSK faced Brizongo in a non-title match. There was a fun inventive spot with the referee being forced to drop down and then leapfrog Tyler Breeze like he was a wrestler. I'm sure it's something they've done numerous times on the Independence and PWG and stuff like that, but I've never seen it before. MSK hit an assisted dropkick and then their finisher, which is called, I think, Something Transmission, but I couldn't really make the name out. We're still waiting for that official name. Um, good feature match for MSK with Brizongo doing a solid job putting them over both in the match and by shaking their hands afterward and kind of giving them that respected veteran rub. MSK told Legato del Fantasma through the camera to come find them. And I do want to just say one more thing about MSK. We all know that the NXT live audience can be fickle, even when they're in full sale, usually when they're in full sale. But this very small friends and family audience that gets to go to these shows, for some reason, is always booing MSK. And it's really counter to the booking, which is unfortunate for NXT, but it's also being done reportedly from what I can tell through searching social media, because one of the MSK guys like insulted that girl Izzy, who like was a huge Bailey fan, if you remember like five years ago. And because of that, maybe they're friends and family with Izzy. I don't know what the case is, but because of that, they're booing MSK now in 2021. It seems completely ridiculous, and it's if you're there watching NXT every week and you're actively trying to hurt the storytelling of this new tag team champion that NXT is trying to get over, it just seems really silly to be doing that in such a closed private scenario. If you're in a larger crowd, you can boo and cheer whoever you want, but being given this weird opportunity, this unique opportunity, I should say, to watch NXT for this small group of people 
to try to go against a team that is not just liked by the others in the crowd, but seemingly universally from the NXT audience. It's just really strange. And every single time MSK is on screen and they boo them, it's just, it's really weird. And I just don't like it. So I figured I would mention it. Uh, We had a very long extended storyline factoring in a lot of people in the main event uh, division, at least right now. We started with Karrion Cross and Austin Theory in a non-title match that opened the show. Theory was apprehensive to get in the ring, but Johnny Gargano convinced him to start the match. Cross dominated early and hit a doomsday Saito, but Theory did get up with some offense, including a somersault dropkick. But in the end, Cross hit two more Saitos, leveled Theory with his forearm, and then bludgeoned the back of his head until he choked him out for the win while staring at Gargano. It's weird that the NXT champion's finisher still does not have a name. Uh, NXT and naming finishers, there's some really weird thing about it where they just don't do it. Other than that, this was booked properly for Cross to come out looking strong. After the match, Cross is kind of celebrating and Finn Balor appears over his shoulder, stands face to face with him and demands a rematch because he doesn't wait in lines. Cross immediately accepted. I'm not sure why you run last week's segment with Kyle O'Reilly and Pete Dunne if you're just going to do a one-on-one match in two weeks. Now, maybe the idea is to do an interference finish and then do a fatal four-way at the upcoming TakeOver that we'll talk about later. But again, I don't know why Kyle O'Reilly and Pete Dunne would be totally okay with Balor challenging last week, them kind of stopping it from happening, and then Balor challenging a second time and Cross just saying, okay, that's the match we'll have. And William Regal having nothing to say about it. So I, I did think that was strange booking and probably unfortunate, even though they made the Dunn and O'Reilly stuff make sense, which we'll talk about right now. Pete Dunn faced Leon Ruff in a singles match. Ruff got in Regal's face backstage in an awesome segment where he demanded a match, but Regal refused even though he was cleared. It was just good character development and acting by Ruff is really what I'm saying. Then Dunn cut a promo in the ring about Cross ducking him by accepting Balor's challenge. And he dared someone to fight him, so Ruff ran in from behind. It was a good short match. Dunn choked Ruff out with his legs and pounded on his head for a stoppage. And then he snapped his fingers. Dunn looked strong and Ruff showed guts. But again, it's weird that Dunn just kind of shrugged away the fact that Cross didn't accept his challenge. Kyle O'Reilly faced Oni Lorcan in a singles match. This was hard hitting. And it ended with O'Reilly hitting his flying knee to the back of the head for the win. Dunn and Lorcan attacked him after the match. But Bobby Fish returned out of nowhere to make the save. After they cleared the ring, O'Reilly thanked Fish, but said he was doing his own thing now, and they parted gracefully. It was a good spot for a return, and it was well done because they're clearly going to be building an O'Reilly and Dunn match, which I assume is going to happen at this next takeover, or at least on an NXT episode in the coming weeks, potentially leading to that fatal four-way at takeover. Uh, Gargano later, since we did mention him already, he screamed at Regal for scheduling his North American Championship match against Bronson Reed next week. Regal warned him not to touch his brass knucks on his desk, so Gargano grabbed and broke Regal's pencil. Funny stuff as usual. Uh, Gargano and Theory were later kicked out of the building after attacking Bronson Reed in the locker room. Reed later said that Regal put next week's title match inside of a steel cage. So strong stuff as usual. I'm now looking forward to that match even more than I was previously. The idea of Reed maybe hitting that tsunami off the top of a steel cage to win the North American title, that would be a pretty great spot. Uh, So we will see if he actually does that. I'm not really sure what the booking will be though, because Gargano is doing a great job with the title, but Reed really should win the title at this point because they need to juice up this mid-card division. So some interesting things and we will see how it all transpires. 
We had a women's championship match on the show, Raquel Gonzalez defending against Mercedes Martinez. At first, I was surprised this did not get the main event spot because it is a major major title match, but it did make sense once we saw the actual main event. Martinez had a draping swinging neckbreaker with Gonzalez on the top rope in a great spot for a near fall. Then Martinez speared Gonzalez while she was running on the ring apron. Gonzalez got a couple of near falls, but Martinez scooted out of a choke bomb and hit a fisherman's buster for a close 2.8. Gonzalez ate a few knees, but booted Martinez and hit her choke bomb finisher for the 1-2-3 to retain the title as expected. This was a freaking war and a great match to put Gonzalez over as a strong champion. Superb job by Martinez as expected, selling for her in every possible way. And it was an exciting match, even though the booking was obvious. So it was strong all around. I'll probably go 3.25 stars, a B. You know, very, very solid. Hit Row made its debut with Swerve saying it's about to get real spooky in NXT. Not only are they called Hit Row, everyone was wearing red and Swerve sat in a red leather chair. It's clearly meant to have Death Row Records vibes. Uh, Swerve cut a promo saying he's been playing a role that's not him. And the other three just kept hyping him up during the promo. I felt that was unnecessary. The rest of it, though, was very, very good. AJ Francis said his new name is Top Dollar or Top Dalla. And he cut a short rap that was actually pretty good, a little bit surprising. Ashanti the Adonis is keeping his name. And Brianna Brady is now B-Fab. She showed off her looks and her cunning while doing a promo. I honestly marked out for the entire thing. They all work really well together. You guys know I'm a massive Swerve fan and have been wanting him to really get a jolt in NXT ever since he debuted. It's awesome to see them going all in with him. Hit Row feels unapologetic and real. It's the type of thing we beg to see in WWE. We got a taste of it with the Hurt Business, but this is even beyond that. NXT just gets so much right, but it really understands how to create unique factions. I'm down with Hit Row. Hit Row has it. Frankie Monet said she will make her world premiere live on NXT in two weeks. There was nothing more to this than just a video announcement. There was also a video package promoting Zoe Stark against Tony Storm next week with Stark calling herself a wrestling machine and Storm explaining that she needs to get rid of Stark and move on basically with her career. It was a nice, simple way to promote the show, but they didn't announce much else for next week. The one thing I will say is that Tony Storm needs to win this match, get the win back. Stark can now lose after winning a couple big ones. That all works out. But we do have this match and we do have the steel cage match for the North American Championship next week. And then last but not least from the show itself, Cameron Grimes showed up at an auction for a mansion and didn't understand why the auctioneer was talking so fast, which was funny. Uh, Grimes bid $8 million. And then out of nowhere, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, came over the top with a $20 million bid for a house that in like an Orlando suburb was probably worth, I don't know, a million, maybe 1.5 million at most. It did not look like any great mansion or anything like that, but it was funny. It was kind of old school wrestling to go outside of, I like that they're doing old school wrestling with both of these guys. They're outside of the ring. They're doing these vignettes and segments uh, where you're having these wrestlers, these crazy, ridiculous wrestlers interact with normal human beings. I always love that from the Million Dollar Man sketches back in the day in WWE. So it's really cool that they're doing the same thing with Cameron Grimes. Uh, Cameron Grimes lost it and DiBiase got in his face, delivered his signature line and laughed and did the whole thing. So it's really funny. It still works. I just wonder 
where they're going with it, like what the resolution is going to be, and then what becomes of Grimes' character after that. And then lastly, as far as NXT goes, I mentioned a few times that they did announce the next TakeOver. They're going back and doing TakeOver In Your House on Sunday, June 13th, once again with Todd Pettengill as the host. They did a great job last year, but with Throwback SmackDown, using the Ico Pro Spot and using some of the other things that were used and created for the In Your House segment last year, I hope they come up with new fun, inventive stuff to do on this year's show as well. Because TakeOver In Your House last year was awesome and it really popped us and marked me out a lot as someone who remembers the original In Your House, who saw it live and watched all of them throughout his tenure as a WWE fan. So I do hope that they draw a lot of that other stuff back here as well. All in all, it was a very, very good uh, NXT. Two weeks in a row, they have brought in, no pun intended, dynamite episodes that have just from start to finish, two full hours been incredibly exciting. You don't always get that with NXT. Sometimes there's story building episodes. Sometimes the action doesn't hit right. This, These two episodes, the last couple of weeks, they've been nonstop where you're watching for two hours and one segment flows into the next. A match result determines a backstage storyline that leads to a match next week. It's just been extremely consistent over the last two weeks and really since their move to Tuesday nights in totality. So really kudos to NXT. The rating was down for the second week in a row. I have absolutely no idea why. I say it almost every week. This is the best two-hour pure wrestling show on American television. If you like wrestling and you like, you know, in-ring action and, and storytelling that clearly makes sense from one week to the next, NXT is your best bet. That doesn't mean it's the best show. People may like SmackDown better. People may like AEW Dynamite better. I can't understand anyone who would like Raw the best out of the four. So it doesn't mean it's the best show, but from a wrestling standpoint, NXT is absolutely crushing it and they deserve a lot of credit. AEW also deserves a lot of credit for an extremely exciting edition of Dynamite. It did have some pitfalls, one in particular that I will probably go on a rant on here, but the show put on a couple really good matches and the storytelling was largely on point. Let's start with the main event. We had the TNT Championship on the line. Darby Allen defending against Miro. Darby cut an awesome taped promo on Miro where he called Miro out for his failed start in AEW with the video games and the best man gimmick, all the stuff that we've been saying on this podcast. This was great. It should have aired earlier in the show to promote the main event. I don't know why they did it right before the main event started. You could have done this at 9 p.m. sharp or before the women's segment at 9.30 anything earlier than the actual main event spot. Miro attacked Darby before the bell and had the TNT logo, a TNT title logo already on his trunks. He demolished Darby inside and outside of the ring. By the time the referee finally rang the bell, Miro hit a thrust kick and thought he got a three count, but did not. Darby regained momentum with a few big moves and a tope cannonball, but Miro countered a coffin drop outside by catching him and hitting a German release suplex. Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky attacked Sting during the commercial break. Miro broke a long chokeout by running Darby into the side of the stage. Darby hit two over-the-top stunners, but Miro caught the coffin drop again on his back. Darby got a couple of near falls out of it, including after a code red. Miro then put Darby in the accolade and completely bent him backwards. Uh, and the referee basically hardly checked on Darby. He didn't really need to. Called the submission to give Miro the win and the first title of his AEW career. 
Then they immediately distracted from the title win by having Sting get attacked and Dark Order come out, followed by Lance Archer to stare at Miro. How about letting Miro celebrate his freaking title for one minute before adding all the bullshit at the end? Not every show needs to end in ridiculous, over-the-top fashion like this. Nevertheless, ignoring the extraneous stuff, this was a fantastic, well-told match, and it was much anticipated with a necessary title change. We talked for weeks about them needing to take the title off Darby and needing to put it on Miro, even before Miro seemed to be factoring into the equation. This was the right timing for Miro to be in the spot, and now we need to hope that he gets to capitalize on the opportunity. This was the second best match between NXT and AEW, the Santos Escobar Kushida two out of three falls, I said was a four star. This was very close, 3.75 stars, B plus, really damn good match. It was just, there was so much attacking from Miro at the beginning and with him having the tights that had the title logo on them, it was a giveaway and you kind of knew. So there wasn't as much anticipation towards the finish because you ultimately knew Miro was gonna win. But 3.75 is still a awesome grade. B plus is still an awesome grade. This was a damn good match. Also a damn good match was the opener. We had the IWGP United States Championship on the line as John Moxley defended against Yuji Nata. First of all, let me be sure to note how insanely cool it is that this match even happened at all. Blue Justice is 53, still wrestling, and it was an NJPW title match in an AEW ring. The entrances were a lot of fun. Moxley came out to Wild Thing by the Trogs. I presume for licensing reasons in order for them to get it on NJPW World. But if not, I think it's one entrance too far for AEW buying licensed music. Moxley's regular theme is awesome. They did a really good job making that theme. He does not need to come out to Wild Thing, which to me doesn't even really fit him. Go back to the old theme. Anyway, as far as the match, Nagata hit an avalanche exploder suplex for a near fall. Mox got a hard way under his left eye and there was just the right amount of blood. It's the blood you want. You don't want blading. You want a hard way like that. And it it looked great on him. Mox then quickly hit paradigm shift for the clean win in what was an eight minute NJPW style G1 climax style match. And then they bowed to each other. This was extremely well done. I do wonder what NJPW has in store for Mox and the US title. He's gonna need to drop it eventually, right? Maybe they do it next month at Dominion if they can fast track a match, or perhaps they wait until Wrestle Kingdom next year. But sooner or later, Mox is gonna need to lose the title. As far as this being on AEW, this was very good. I don't really have a grade for it because it was only eight minutes and not much happened, but it was an exciting match and definitely worth seeing and a very good opener to the show to draw the audience in. So I, I gave you two big positives about AEW, right? And I did that on purpose, even though they were the proper ways to start this segment. We're gonna talk about a huge negative. So Cody Rhodes delivered his major announcement, which simultaneously was completely predictable and completely mind-boggling. He came out and rambled about the national anthem our two-party system, and being proud to be an American in juxtaposition to Anthony Agogo, who's just from Great Britain. He kept on going on about it and then started crying about his mixed-race child being born soon. And I only mention that specifically because he mentioned it specifically in the promo. 
And he's doing this while acting like a go-go, punching him in the ribs one time with some affront to the American way. By the way, Agogo himself is biracial, but this was so nationalistic and tone deaf without any storyline reasoning or self-awareness from this guy who is just completely out of touch at this point. Cody then said he would fight Agogo at double or nothing, but for one night only, he would not be the American nightmare, but instead the American dream. And I guess he's doing this because Agogo comes out with a Union Jack and lays it on people. That's some affront to the United States and the American flag. So while it's obviously great that Cody gets to honor Dusty by using the nickname for one night, we're not hating on that. He's bringing it out against a neophyte in a match that has no business whatsoever being on a major pay-per-view. This feels like something that he should be doing against Pac if you want it to be against someone from Great Britain or Ray Phoenix or another international superstar after an extended storyline built up to it. Not a go-go because he punched him in the gut one time last week. And again, the question, the real question is, why are you doing this storyline at all? This did not hit in any way. Not everything about Cody needs to be some massive moment or major announcement. It is such an indulgence by Tony Khan that he allows him to do this. This is a singles match against a relative nobody today, who I hope one day is a somebody, for a pay-per-view. Just announce it in a storyline and build to a veteran versus rookie angle. Let a go-go cut a promo about how Cody is a legacy in the industry while he's had to overcome massive obstacles and surgeries just to get to this point in his wrestling career. This garbage promo was jingoistic, not patriotic. Cody's out there talking in the longest possible, most rambling way, taking this weird path toward referencing his father, talking about race and the election and the last four years for a wrestling promo against a guy from Great Britain. Dusty Rhodes and his American Dream gimmick was the antithesis of this. This shit was clunky, it was indulgent, totally lacking self-awareness, self-filating, masturbatory, out of touch with the times, extremely tone-deaf, embarrassing, and frankly, just terrible in every possible way. Pick your damn adjective. Here's mine. Zero point zero. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Cody should be embarrassed by this promo. It was terrible. And they should really consider seriously changing the direction of whatever this storyline is ahead of Double or Nothing. We move on to the tag team championship, the Young Bucks defending against SCU. Nick Jackson superkicked Christopher Daniels into the ring post and Daniels head literally started gushing blood. I assume he bladed on the eyebrow, but holy shit, AEW just cannot stop with the over the top, completely unnecessary blood. And by the way, why are their ring posts squares? You ever notice that they actually have sharp points on them? Like that doesn't make any sense. Ring posts are supposed to be safe, uh, you know, bumps for people to take, not where you can actually get cut open. So if it was blading, it was over the top. If it wasn't blading, they really need to reconsider, you know, changing the design of those ring posts. It's just really strange. Anyway, Frankie Kazarian nearly got a double pinfall with a fisherman suplex and a matchbox cover simultaneously. 
Doc Gallows distracted the referee during an inside cradle, and Kazarian hit the Styles Clash while staring at Gallows, but the fall was broken. That was a really smart and fun spot, doing AJ Styles' move, staring at his former partner. I absolutely loved that. Daniels came back in from his episode without tagging, and Matt Jackson attacked the cut. Matt then mocked the Shawn Michaels, I'm sorry, I love you spot with Ric Flair and super kicked Daniels for a near fall. Another really fun spot, and it got real heat for me because it's almost like, how dare you do that? How dare you mock HBK and Flair? And that's why I love that he did it. Uh, Daniels hit the BME for a near fall, but Matt used a cold spray can to knock him out. But even that was a near fall. Daniels then ate a BTE trigger as Nick finally covered him for the one, two, three. This was a well-booked match, but the whole time the referee was counting falls for Kazarian, he was not even the legal man because Daniels re-entered without a tag and eventually took the fall that ended the match. Other than that, it was really good storytelling with great, strong heel heat for the Bucks, forcing the official split of SCU as a tag team. So I, I enjoyed this, but it wasn't necessarily a great you know, match from a wrestling standpoint. So I don't have a grade for it. If I did, it would probably be like, you know, in the three-star realm, lower three-star realm, but it just wasn't really good enough to actually grade. Uh, Mox and Eddie Kingston later tore apart the Elite locker room, seemingly for no reason, uh, and the Elite complained later when they found it. The Bucks then challenged the Varsity Blondes to a title match next week, and then they challenged Mox and Kingston to another title match at Double or Nothing, which has been the expected booking for the pay-per-view. I really don't like how the AEW rankings work. I don't mind that Dark and Elevation matches count, but the Varsity Blondes are getting a tag team title match on Dynamite without having a single tag team victory on Dynamite or a pay-per-view in their entire AEW careers. And they also just lost a fatal four-way match to determine the number one contenders so that Bucks could defend the title this week on Dynamite. So it's just all over the place. I noticed that the tag team uh, rankings are worse than the other ones in terms of the consistency. You don't need to have three title matches in a four-week period. People get on WWE for doing that all the time. At, le- at least these are with different opponents, but you know the Bucks have a match coming at double or nothing, so they're not going to lose the titles to the Varsity Blondes on Dynamite. So why even have the match in the first place? I'd rather the Varsity Blondes be pissed that they're being overlooked for the pay-per-view, cut a promo on the Young Bucks, get a couple of TV wins, and then you give the Varsity Blondes a title match at some point in June on Dynamite. That's the way you book it. So I think just that was extremely strange. Christian Cage had a backstage promo and said he had an open contract and will face any member of Team Taz next week. He also said he was entering himself in the Casino Battle Royal at Double or Nothing. Matt Seidel came out and said he was entering also and that he was going to take the open contract for next week because Christian insulted him about slipping during last year's Casino Battle Royal. This should be a good match. I just can't help but thinking Christian should be in a singles match at Double or Nothing and not lost in the shuffle in the Battle Royal. Even if he wins it, like he shouldn't really be the one to win it, right? So I don't know exactly why they're doing this unless they're trying to give him the equivalent of the edge moment, but then they could have debuted him that way. So it's again, a little bit clunky storytelling and booking, but you know, we're not gonna judge it until we actually see what happens. There was a number one contendership match to face Kenny Omega at double or nothing between Pac and Orange Cassidy. Orange at beach break right after the bell for a near fall. Then Pac, I keep calling him Pac, it's Pac came back and dominated him with a couple of missed drop kicks. Orange twice rolled to avoid the Black Arrow, but he ate a Liger Bomb for a near fall. Orange looked like he got his bell rung at a minimum on that Liger Bomb. 
and Aubrey Edwards started counting, then checked on him during a commercial break, and then restarted a count. No one from medical came to check on him as they restarted the match. He comes back in the ring, does like two moves, and then they finally stop it, and a doctor comes out to check on Orange Cassidy. Then Don Callis comes out with a microphone to stall and distract. Kenny Omega runs in with a title shot to the back of Pac's head and neck, so the referee could perform a double countout and end the match in a draw. Callis and Omega said, well, clearly he's going to have the night off at double or nothing since nobody won. And then Tony Schiavone came out and announced that it's going to be a triple threat match at the pay-per-view. So it seems to me like the triple threat booking was always the plan, even though the finish was improvised to get there because Orange got injured. As I said last week, Omega versus Orange is not a main event for a pay-per-view. This way, it's a first ever triple threat world title match for AEW with three exciting wrestlers. In the end, the booking is a big win. So good job, Tony Khan, on the booking. But for AEW to allow this match to continue, even for a couple minutes, without a doctor checking in, only to then stop the match and have the doctor come out, was completely ridiculous and another in a string of terrible medical decisions for this company that it's made over its existence. They could have stopped the match, said there was no winner, and then still booked the triple threat match. There's no harm in that. They could have done the exact same storyline with Omega and Don Callis coming out and Tony Schiavone and done the exact same thing, except not had Omega interfere and do that whole deal because the match would have been ruled a draw. So, man, I just don't get what they're doing, but they really need to smarten up from a medical standpoint in the way that they take care of their wrestlers. A few more things for AEW before we get out of here. Hangman Page said in a backstage promo that Brian Cage should not be satisfied with his win last week because Taz played a role, even though he really didn't play that large of a role. Then Hangman challenged Cage to a one-on-one match at Double or Nothing without Taz or any other teammates at ringside. We don't get too many rematches in AEW, especially in short order, but I like this one a lot because Page should want retribution after that loss and being someone who is basically number one in the rankings, or I think he was number one in the rankings, he should want to regain that spot back. So being able to challenge Brian Cage and get a rematch of what was a very damn good uh, dynamite match that opened the show a few weeks ago, that's going to be awesome. And it's great placement on the pay-per-view. Pinnacle got a coronation earlier in the show. Ortiz, Jake Hager, and Sammy Guevara said the inner circle would never stop coming after Pinnacle and demanded a rematch. I guess they're suggesting a six-man, but it got a little convoluted later. AEW literally aired a screenshot of their ratings from last week, which was a total eye roll before MJF came out, put out on Plastic Crown, and started talking about ratings and demo numbers and all that garbage. There were five women standing with them on the ring apron for no reason. They never explained why. MJF declined the rematch challenge, and Tully Blanchard gave the pinnacle matching watches. Inner Circle then interrupted by honking a horn, as Jericho emerged in a huge arm brace for what is apparently a dislocated elbow, and Guevara sprayed them all with champagne from a cannon mounted like a machine gun in a playoff of Steve Austin and Kurt Angle, both of which were done so much better than this because they were like half a mile away from the ring and the stream of champagne was extremely weak. MJF was so angry he offered a stadium stampede match with Inner Circle breaking up forever if they lose. I love the match booking since it will be the last pay-per-view at Daly's Place. So it's a good way to utilize the stadium. So that's a solid. But to do this match three weeks after Blood and Guts is really strange. 
I don't know why you have such a major match in blood and guts, which should be a send-off for the feud, only to then go back and do a stadium stampede match, which will be a send-off for the feud. And you're doing them back-to-back in such a short period of time where Pinnacle versus Inner Circle should be two factions that feud for a long time. For that reason, I see no result other than Inner Circle winning the stadium stampede match. I mean, they have to, because there's no reason to break them up whatsoever. As far as the spring of the champagne, as I said, obviously that lacked any originality. And with all the WWE references on the show, they probably could have done without that single one. Uh, Britt Baker did a sit-down interview with Jim Ross where she said she's hard to kill and the pulse of AEW's women's division. This was quite well done and a great way to put Baker over as confident and cunning. It is officially her time to be champion. It will be an exciting match against Hikaru Shida at Double or Nothing. And as I've said numerous times, Britt Baker must win and become the new AEW Women's Champion. Thunder Rosa fought Jasmine Alude. This was the only women's match of the show in its typical spot against Jobber with no storyline relevance and Rosa won in a total squash. So when we're doing this social media counting of uh, wrestling time for women across the four brands this week, don't be surprised if AEW is actually at the bottom of that entire thing. And then lastly, Jade Cargill was interviewed by Shivani. It was the same as her tape promos except an interview format. It feels as if they're building this up for her to get a manager that's unveiled as a surprise, such as like Mickey James. But this is just incredibly repetitive and boring to this point. It still doesn't make sense where you have Jade Cargill repeating. She does not need a manager, but she's okay listening to managers and may eventually pick one. Like it just, again, doesn't make any sense. You're trying to show that she's confident while she's being recruited but she doesn't want to be recruited even though she's interested in what they may have to offer. It just doesn't work all together. So as I said, NXT was an extremely solid show. Actually, it was an exceptional show. AEW was an extremely solid show. It was really, really good if you're able to pull out Cody's promo, if you're able to pull out what happened at the end of the Pac and Orange Cassidy match, Pac and Orange Cassidy match. Pull those two things out. And you have a very damn good show. Instead, it was just exceptionally solid, but both extremely entertaining. When You're picking nits sometimes when it comes to NXT and AEW, right? It's like, on what level of good or great are NXT and AEW going to be this week? And generally, both are in that good to great category. I would contextualize this week, NXT is great and AEW is good. I think last week I said uh, the same thing because I didn't necessarily love Blood or Guts. But AEW has had some good episodes and great episodes, I should say, in recent weeks. And I will say, the two main matches on AEW, Darby Allin and Miro, John Moxley and Yuji Nagata, those were fan-freaking-tastic. So those two matches from AEW, plus the two out of three falls cruiserweight title match and the women's championship match, Raquel Gonzalez against Mercedes Martinez from NXT, those are four great matches that we got on Tuesday and Wednesday night. Now the question is going to be, what can SmackDown do on Friday? Because Raw was once again unspectacular. Can SmackDown do anything? Can it put on any high quality match to steal show of the week or match of the week from NXT or AEW? I don't know that it's going to, but we will have to see what happens Friday on SmackDown. A reminder for all of our listeners, do not forget Friday after SmackDown, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast will be live on Twitter spaces with a go-home show for WWE WrestleMania Backlash. You cannot listen to that show archived. 
You can listen live or not at all. It's just a bonus show. So don't worry, you're not going to be missing much. If we do a very important go-home show, it will be in podcast format, just as we did for WrestleMania. You know, we'll do it for probably SummerSlam and Royal Rumble and pay-per-views like that. But for the B-level shows, we're going to do live go-home shows on Twitter spaces. Once again, the way you can listen to that show is basically tune in 10 p.m., 10.05 p.m. on Twitter spaces. In order to do that, you need to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And you also need to go ahead and download the official Twitter app for iOS or Android. And there will be ways for you to tip us monetarily, if you so choose, during that show. Uh, Do not forget, on Sunday, we will be back with a WWE WrestleMania Backlash Instant Analysis Podcast airing just minutes after the show goes off the air. And then, of course, next week, we will be back on Tuesday with our WWE episode, followed by Thursday's NXT and AEW episode. You know the drill when it comes to this podcast. Not only is it all about the five, it's also all about being marks for the Silver King, being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts and dropping a five-star rating and review. And once again, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That's it. That is today's show. The Silver King is bidding you edge you. So I will leave you, as always, with three final words. Bye for now.